Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I think a lot about like wedding analogies sometimes. I think like if not to say getting married is a bad thing, but if all people talked about was like marriage is the best and it will transform organizations and everyone will be abundant and happy and they don't talk about all the work <laughs> that goes into like building and maintaining a marriage, we're doing ourselves and everyone a, a disservice. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Rodney Evans. Hello, org design nerds. We're also joined by our friend and colleague Yehudi Meshaninov. Hey, guys. Great to be here. This season, we're going to be meeting more members of The Ready and finding out what they're thinking about and seeing out there in the world of work. And Yehudi is the first brave and intrepid soul on our ship to step forward and want to come uh, chat it up with Rodney and myself. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the shadow side of self-management. But before we unpack that, let's do ye oldie check-in round. So we will do a check-in round like we do, but since we have one of our own here today, I'm going to ask Yehudi <laughs> to run it for us. So uh, Yehudi, over to you for a check-in. Sure. Considering our topic for today, I thought a good check-in round would be, what is one way in which your work self is different than the way you are at home or with your family and friends? So I can mm. start. I think my work self is a little bit more pre-planned. Like when I go on vacation or when I'm just doing things with friends, I really don't make much of a plan at all before a workshop or some sort of work engagement, I'm definitely trying to build an agenda or trying to figure out the flow. And I'm not sure if that's just because I want it to be perfect or if I'm just used to doing it or trained that way, but definitely different. For me, I think I'm just sillier at home. Like my work self is a little bit more to the point, a little bit more, let's get shit done. But I mean, I'm having fun, I'm smiling, but at home, I'm like, I'm making funny faces, I'm dancing, I'm singing at the top of my lungs while I make a sandwich. Like, I'm definitely a little bit more of a theater kid at home. And for me, I think it probably has the most to do with decisiveness. In a work context, I'm pretty clear most of the time. If you ask me for my opinion on something, I have one. And though those convictions are usually loosely held, I'm rarely without an opinion. In my personal life, if someone else is willing to drive and say like, this is where dinner is. This is where we're going for drinks. This is what we think for vacation. This is the Airbnb I want to rent. I'm like, great. It looks great. I love it. It looks great. (laughs) So uh, I think that people um, who cross over those line in my life are often surprised by how very malleable I am at home. (laughs) I wish I could master that. I want to steal that from you. Uh, Sometimes I get way too animated about a choice at home that I don't even care about. I mean, like with Airbnb stuff, my best friend does all the research and I'm like, we need a king size bed. We need our own bathroom. I don't care about anything else. (laughs) That's it. That's it. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. That was great. I like that question. I'm going to steal that. 
today's topic is the shadow side, the underbelly, the unexpected challenges of working in new ways. And I want to start by asking you, Yehudi, give us the lay of the land and kind of what made it interesting and compelling to you. So I think what made this topic interesting for me was honestly my own experience working in a self-managing system. Like lots of org nerds and consultants, I think I had read a lot about it and actually was Mm -hmm. coaching other companies on self-management practices before I was in a self-managing company. And I had worked (laughs) in organizations that were like really empowered and we were doing a lot of things in new ways, but we were still pretty traditional if you think about like the structure of the company itself. Mm -hmm. And the ready was the first time when I was in like a fully legit self-managing company, soup to nuts. And coming in, you know, you read all these great books and you think like, oh, it's going to be amazing. Like, it's just going to be nirvana (laughs) of organizational life. And tell people how it really is. So many wonderful things like lovely colleagues and great work. And there were things that were really, really hard. And I found myself stressed about like writing a message in Slack and thinking about like, how will it read and what will people think Mm -hmm. or, you know, decisions coming up and like, am I doing the right job? Who should I ask? I don't want to ask for permission, but I kind of want permission And just like all the stuff that comes up. And I remember the hardest part, I think, for me was thinking like, it shouldn't be this hard. So I must be missing something. Like I must be doing something Mm. wrong. Like the ready is practicing all these great practices. Like life should be easier. And in some ways it was. And in some ways it actually seemed harder. And as I started talking to more folks at the ready and colleagues and friends who are working in other self-managing organizations, like I started seeing a trend that like, yes, it's awesome. And it comes with its own challenges. And that just really got me curious. It's funny because when we do the Brave New Work talk, we often mention in the roundabout bit that, you know, being in roundabouts can be pretty stressful. Like you definitely feel like you have to have your guard up, you're paying attention, you're very involved in being part of the solution. And I feel like that is that is definitely part and parcel to what you're saying. Like it can ask a lot of us to be in a system like this. It's certainly not easier in the ways that you might expect. It's easier in maybe unexpected ways, but harder in in different ones. And I think the other thing is when you join a new organization, there's all of the learning to be done about what the norms are of that organization and what the business is of that company and the history and product and all of the things. And then there's like the learning of your job and how you're <laughs> actually going to do that part of it. But but in a self-managed system, then there's the third piece of learning if you've not lived in a system like that before, which is like learning this whole other discipline that Mm -hmm. I think much like a lot of the ways that we come into companies and they're like meetings, we know how to do meetings. We've been doing meetings for years. And we're like, yeah, but you suck at it. You should learn how to do different kinds of meetings. I think a lot of us enter a self-managing system and we're like, well, I've been doing work in a company for a long time. How different could this really be? (laughs) And the answer is quite different. And there's a proper go slow to go fast, I think for like six or eight months when you enter any system that is really and truly self-managed. And at least in my experience, there's a huge gap between kind of the quasi-empowered, very fun family atmosphere of a traditional company that has that patina of different and like really, really sharing power and being in a completely different context. And so for me, that was, that required a lot of changes in how I show up. Still does. I mean, I'm still, still figuring it out. So like your hoodie, when you think about that, what did you find hard about it? Like I would be interested for all of our greatest hits on what was actually hard. So I think there are kind of two, two parts and they're probably worth splitting out because there's like the explicit rational side of it, where it's Mm. just like learning new system, new ways of doing things and understanding holacracy or sociocracy and the circles. And there's just like all the 
the learning and the cognition that comes. And then there's the implicit emotional stuff. And for me, the implicit emotional stuff, I would say was definitely a lot harder, but there is like a whole learning that is worth calling out of just like the nuts and bolts of how to function. (laughs) I think I saw someone snarkily call it like asking people to master Dungeons and Dragons while they're learning a new job and in the midst of doing all their work. So it's like, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of learning just to the mechanics of it. But I think for me, it was just realizing like in a traditional organization, there's so many things that you take for granted. Like, you know who your boss is. And so, you know, like if they're happy with you doing well, if you need to ask a question or like get permission for something, you can do that. And then the load is off your shoulders, just kind of continue mm-hmm. worrying about it. And I think to Aaron's point about the roundabout, like in the roundabout, you're, you're always thinking and you're always on. And so I think coming in, if I'm going back, it's, gosh, it's been like three and a half years now. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's definitely feels like some of those things are in the rear view mirror. And some of those things are still things that I, that I definitely have to like manage actively. But I think it, a lot of it was like, how am I doing? I'm asking people to, for feedback, but it feels like I'm not sure if they're telling me like the full story. And then things would come up something would happen or there'd be a difficult conversation or something would be happening around like at the ready. And it would seem like, gosh, okay, are we going to talk more about this? Like some people are upset. Is someone going to come in and make this right? And in a traditional org, like maybe the team leader or someone will kind of take responsibility to kind of corral people together or like reset the stage. And instead things would be left open. And then I would feel like, wait, should, should I do something? But right. I'm kind of new, but I'm noticing something. And then I'd reach out to someone that would be like, yeah, I'm kind of upset about this. And then I'd be like, okay, now what? Is this a system tension? Is this worth a proposal? Is this just, they just need to work it out. And I think I particularly struggled with taking on other people's tensions and taking on Mm -hmm. like things I was noticing in the system that felt like they could be improved, but not knowing what to do about it or if it actually mattered. And actually, Rodney, I think you were the one who once told me something about just like letting, just sitting with tensions a little bit more. And Mm -hmm. not feeling like that was a big learning for me, like not feeling like everything that comes up that's hard means there's a problem or something needs to be done about it. So those were some of the learnings I I could probably go on. Yeah, (laughs) I think most of us probably have some experience with those. I think for me, like being at the ready was the first time that I felt like I was in an actual meritocracy. And what I mean by that is that it felt like a real marketplace where it was like, oh, I'm like not going to get work if nobody wants to work with me. And like, I'm not going to get work (laughs) if I'm shitty at my job. I've, you know, I've been a power holder in a lot of systems, like an explicit top of the triangle power holder where, you know, I was going to get the work first because I was making the decisions or like I was going to get the best projects or like, no, you know, would people tell me my idea was stupid? Maybe, maybe, maybe because I had good relationships based on trust. But like, was I ever going to post a message that like nobody even gave me an emoji reaction about in my last job? (laughs) No, I was not. That was not a thing that, that was going to week, happen actually. to me. <laughs> Did you not get a lot of love? I wasn't here. Didn't get a lot of action. Yeah. Okay, I was sweet. like, hey, I have an idea. Crickets. <laughs> Crickets. Right. It's it's a feeling that we all have experienced. And so I feel like it's really easy when you have that kind of privilege and that sort of fully integrated, explicit power for years and years and years to believe that the merit lines up to that. <laughs> And then you go into a system where it doesn't and you're like, oh shit, I am like not as smart as I thought I was. And like, I'm getting real signal from a bunch of people about when I'm dialed in and when uh, I'm really not. For me, what you said that resonated both of you and, and this sort of how I describe this phenomenon is it just boils down to like, what should I do and when should I do it? Mm -hmm. So if I see something going wrong, 
if I have an idea, if somebody asks for feedback, like when is it my place to, right. to provoke, to force a change, to force a conversation, to give harsh feedback, to do like, when is it my place to do that? And when do I sit back and look? And what I notice in our group, but also in other groups that are grappling with this is there are definitely periods you go through, particularly when you have a lot of new blood in the house where a lot of people are like stepping back, looking to the left, looking to the right, like who's going to fix the floor tile. And, and when they find out that like, nobody's going to do that, if they don't do it, Mm -hmm. then things can get stuck. And I think that is, you know, that's a tough one. And, And really knowing then like, when is it important enough to me that I'll be the one mm-hmm. to like risk reputation, to take time, to put my neck out there and and do what needs to be done? And that's the hardest part about having a comments. Like, you right. know, when there's when there's a real issue, like who's willing to to do the hard thing? And often as, you know, kind of a founder type, I do get a lot of people coming to me with those sorts of things and being like, when are you or we going to do X about Y? And, and then I have the same question in my own head because I'm, I'm playing from the other position of like, do I play the old traditional role here? Do I step back and leave room? Is this my thing? So I'm as confused as anybody. I think what I love about the commons idea is it's, it's literally an empty space. And I think what often happens in those empty spaces is we end up projecting a lot of stuff. And so Ronnie, like I was thinking about your comment and because I've had the same experience, you post something and you don't get reactions. And so my monkey mind goes crazy in that moment. And it's like, oh, that must be because people don't like it, or they think it's stupid or, and I know full and well that when I'm on the other side, and I'm not reacting often, it's just because I'm busy, or like, I don't have energy for this right now. But when I'm the one posting the comment, it's so easy (laughs) for me to like, you know, throw so many assumptions and narratives over what some of that means. And I think because the commons is just less defined, there's more space for all of our kind of monkey mind or worse fears and, and projections to start um, running overdrive if we're not really conscious of it. At least it's something that, that I definitely notice. And I think it's, it's actually unique to the, the kind of openness that's created when you have a real commons versus like a more traditional hierarchical org. Yeah. And I think relatedly, there's just a lot of emotional regulation. I mean, related to things like that, but, but what I was actually thinking about is more like in terms of sort of what your share of the task is, because it's very easy to be like, why don't we have this toy that we should have and that I want to have? And then you're like, okay, well, if I make this toy as a person who makes a lot of things inside this system, am I going to be resentful that I had to make it? I do a lot of in my own, like my own self-work and my work as part of a self-managing system of being like, okay, I want to give to the commons and I want to contribute to the commons. And I know myself well enough to know that if I do that, to my own detriment or to my own burnout or at the expense of client work and I don't see other people showing up to that I'm mm-hmm. going to I'm going to end up being not the actor I want to be because like <laughs> I'm going to hold resentments about people taking from the commons who are not putting into it so it's like there's all mm. there's all of these layers of work that that basically get spread out across every member that are often reserved for leads or managers or power holders. And instead now we all have to decide like what is a fair distribution of things. It's funny what you're talking about is going sort of like from one to one to one to many or many to many, which is of course adding complexity, right? Like when, when my whole identity and relationship and trajectory is tied up in just you and me, gosh, that's easy. (laughs) And then when it's like, do 20 people like my idea, 
where do I begin, right? Like I'm definitely doing a lot of storytelling to your point, Yehudi, about what are people thinking and what's happening and even what is the emergent mood or the emergent needs of the system when we don't have one person to say this is the thing or this Mm -hmm. is the thing. Yeah, and what I love about this conversation is it sounds like all of us are resonating with the amount of work we do ourselves to be just like a thriving active member of a self-managing system. And I, I think that's not a bad thing. Like, I think um, that's actually a really good thing. And it's worth calling out that like, yes, it takes self-work. You're probably going to have to do some, you know, developmental stuff. You might have to like check in with a therapist and be like, hey, why is it that I keep having this insecurity about my worthiness coming up for me or, or whatever? But I think um, when we don't talk about the work that's needed, then it becomes this kind of unspoken thing. And, you know, Ricky and I, we just had our first wedding anniversary a little while ago. And I think Congrats. a lot about, thank you. I think a lot about like wedding analogies sometimes. I think like if not to say getting married is a bad thing, but if all people talked about was like marriage is the best and it will transform organizations and everyone will be abundant and happy and they don't talk about all the work (laughs) that goes into like building and maintaining a marriage, we're doing ourselves and everyone a a disservice. What's interesting is, and I'm curious to hear more from, from both of you, like what are the things you do to replenish the tank or to like maintain that personal discipline of, of nurturing yourself so that you can show up in, in the ways that you're describing? It's interesting. I almost think there's a formula here, and I will answer your question, but in a roundabout way, there's almost a formula here, some kind of theorem of like, the more work that everyone else has done and is doing on their own narratives, their own ego, their own emotional energy, the way they play in a system like this, the less of a burden it is on you. Mm -hmm. And that goes in all directions, right? So like, if you're in a system where everybody is super mature and present and alive to the way to do this, then like, the effort is less than a brand new team doing it where they're just like all figuring it out on the fly. And so, so I think part of it is, is really codependent in that way and, and systemic, which is a really interesting, and possibly paradoxical observation. In terms of managing energy, I don't know that I do anything explicit, but I find that what I do is I lean in and I lean out. So to your point about giving to the commons, Rodney, like I'm either more participatory, more vocal, more in it, or I'm more in my cave, like developing, renewing, what have you. And I don't even really pay strict conscious attention to that, but I do notice it, the waves. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I could talk about this for like an entire episode. I feel like I have a lot of... (laughs) A lot of personal practice around self as instrument. So, you know, there are all the usual hygienic things like the fact that I sleep like nine plus hours a night and I exercise constantly and I eat really healthy food and I have a really loving relationship and dogs and things like that. You know, all that stuff is helpful in terms of being able to do this work. I would say for me, honestly, because I am so... Uh, relationship oriented and such an extrovert. I just don't work with people I don't want to work with Mm. like full stop. Mm. Like there is never a second of the day that I do not want to talk to Allie Randall. Like Mm. I fucking love her. She cracks me (laughs) up. I think she's a genius. I get so much energy from our conversation. Anytime I'm stuck, I know that she is going to like find a way to like, you know, pry me out of my stuckness. And so I just having that kind of partnership and I've had it with other people. Ali is certainly not the only example, just my most recent example. And I feel the same way on the client side. Like I just Mm -hmm. gravitate toward the people inside the place that give me a lot of energy. And like, you know, my main client right now at charter, like 
I can't wait to talk to Jody. Like I was just on vacation for five days and I legit have so many things that I want to talk to her about that, <laughs> that occurred to me. And so those things to me, just given the amount of energy we expend and the amount of emotion that we expend in doing this work, if I don't get to have the people to be sort of like in the trenches of this with that I really vibe with, like, it's just, I'm just not gonna, it's just, I'm just going to be muscling through it and it's going to show in every way. Mm. What about you, honey? What do you do? What are your secrets? (laughs) What are you up to? Spill. What do I do? I have a prayer practice that I pray every morning and that's really helpful. I find just like by thinking about other things, actually like the deeper stuff comes up and I'll notice a feeling that I am having or like a thought that until I make space for, I'm not even aware that it's there. I think movement, like before this call, I went for a little run and just in general, like I find that using my body more to sense what's happening in the system because my mind is often not there. But if I tap into my body and be like, wait a minute, I'm feeling tense. Like, why am I feeling tense? What is that telling me? Or um, I'm feeling like energy and I can only do that if I'm I'm exercising. And then I think just a lot of self-inquiry over the years because to Rodney, I think he used the term like self as instrument. And I I love that term. It's one of my favorite terms because I think that's so true. Like we are, we are the instrument. And if I'm not paying attention, like it's easy for me to think it's a system issue if it's a me Mm -hmm. issue. And so first just being like, wait a minute, what's going on inside? Okay. Like, why am I feeling that way? Is it triggering something that I know is a pattern for me? Maybe it's about my childhood. Maybe it's about just like other work patterns that I'm bringing into this situation has actually nothing to do with what's happening. All of that kind of helps me. And then I come in, I could come in and ask them questions because I kind of know what's a pattern that I'm looking for. And, and I'm often surprised, like there was something actually happened at the ready a few weeks ago. Someone said something in a group meeting, they got a lot of feedback and like, I got quite anxious for them. And then I reached out to them. I was just like, Hey, how was that for you? And they were fine. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that we see when we start doing transformation work in organizations or looking at our own company is like, we make changes to a lot of fields of the canvas in terms of governance and in terms of structure and in terms of practices that are ungoverned and are just agreed to. And yet there are (laughs) patterns and persistent dynamics that, that prevail. And sometimes those things are really great. And sometimes they are a bit shadowy in nature. So uh, what do you guys think about that? Is that a thing that you see? What is that thing? What should we do about it? Um, I I think that it's always so interesting to like ask the question of the implicit and the explicit because what's like what we can see, what we can touch, what we can document is often where our attention goes. And I think there's a lot of value to that. So like, yes, if you have a policy that doesn't make sense or is org that, of course you should <laughs> change it. And the way you structure your office matters and all of those things that we know to be true. And I think the implicit stuff is harder to see. And so often it just gets ignored. And so I think of a few things that just, you know, come to mind when you ask the question for me, um, big ones are power. So like, is there someone who, because of their role in society or because of their role in the company, like has more power that's um, implicit power. So maybe like on the org chart, we're all equal, but are we really like when one person talks, does everyone listen? Is there a person we all look to? You know, I, I think the other things I, I look for are just common, like group dynamic stuff. So like one is splitting, right? Where like in a group, we go to both extremes. So for example, on this call, mm. if we would be like, self-management is horrible or self-management is awesome. And, and often in groups that happens where you kind of start splitting to extremes or you get scapegoating is another like common mm. group dynamic that could often happen. I think especially on self-managing teams where, where we're all equal, it's 
sometimes easier to be like, this person is the problem, especially if they're new or if they're different, rather than there's something about how we work, which is no longer serving us now that we're a different kind of org or a bigger org. So yeah, those are those are a few, but I think I think they come down to the like the human side of it. Like at the end of the day, even on the org chart, we might all be equal and we might have a policy that says that we're all doing this together, but we we layer on all of our our human experience and we have thousands of years of navigating in groups. And so I think we're primed to look for all those little hints of like who's the person who really matters, who's the person whose voice is, you know, should be listened to, and then that could be reinforced. And I think by asking the question and just kind of asking like, what, what are the dynamics here and recognizing that they're, they're going to be there. It doesn't mean we're bad people. It doesn't mean we're like failing in self-management. <laughs> it just means that we're human and we're going to do what humans do. I find it lets the air out of the balloon mm-hmm. a little bit uh, just by talking about it. And Aaron, I actually have a great memory. At one of our ready retreats, we had been struggling with some structure questions. And there was a great moment after all that ended where you started the retreat and you just said like, I want to own as the founder of this company, here's how I showed up to this and how I think it contributed. And you weren't proposing a governance change. You didn't change any of the structure, but you just kind of owned some of the implicit dynamics of what were happening. And I felt like that opened up so much for all of us. And it was probably one of our most productive retreats yet. And so I think that for me is like a great example of how Yes, we made the structure changes and those were needed, but that was not enough. What was needed was also for you to kind of own as the founder in the system, your role in all that. And that kind of opened up for all of us to own our part. I No, I totally get that. And I think, you know, at some level, like any game, you can play within the rules and play the game very differently. And so like, you know, you can play poke like competition poker in Vegas with that's cutthroat and mean, or you can play it with friends over drinks and have the most raucous, hilarious time. And it's all about how you show up. So I do think you're right that like, there's always going to be a space between the structure and the lived experience of a system, for sure. And I think that the, you know, the whole implicit explicit thing, it doesn't account for reputation and the movement of power in a in a human system that's always going on. So like just because we decentralize certain kinds of authority and we, you know, co-own and consent to what our policies are, it doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, people that are trending one way or the other and that there aren't ideas that are trending one way or the other and that that doesn't affect our experience because I think it absolutely does. So so yeah, I guess to answer your question Rodney, I don't think you can ever squash out all that you know, squishiness of the fact that it's not just a set of rules and structures. It's also a bunch of human beings bouncing off of each other, (laughs) trying to, you know, live their best lives. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, power literacy is really the through line of all Mm -hmm. of the shadow of self-management. And, and the reason I say power literacy and not power dynamics is because, of course, there's going to be both explicit and implicit power in every organization. Mm-hmm. And people owning and holding and understanding their power and its source, I think, is something that's often missing. So right. if you take that's the our, literate part. Th- that's the literate part. So if you take our system into consideration, it's like, are there people who hold power because of their demographic because of their age and race and gender. Okay, gross. No, thank you. Are there people (laughs) who hold power because of the experience that they've had at the ready and the number of reps that they've had and the number of, you know, the, the, the amount of capacity or expertise they've built? That's really cool. Are there people who are sort of like shadowy behind the scenes negotiating and influencing and amassing power that way? less cool. To me, it's like we all need to understand if everybody in a room turns and listens when I talk, why is that? 
Mm-hmm. And, and are and we okay if, with that? And are we okay with it? And, and, and am I okay with that? And are you all okay with that? And, and is there anything about that that actually should be codified? Or maybe not. I think that is a piece that's often missing. And we're really quick mm. to point it out when it's happening. But we're not very, what, from what I see, like inside the ready, certainly. I don't think that there is very high degree of self-awareness in power literacy. And I mm-hmm. think that mm-hmm. is where most of our darkest patterns and histories has come from. That's varsity. <laughs> when do we get our jerseys? When, exactly. when may I get my letter jacket? Yeah, cool. That's really interesting. I mean, it's a look, there's like, I say this all the time to clients. There are trade-offs, like there are trade-offs in any system. And those things are present in bureaucracy too, but they're sort of cemented over by other kinds of structures. And when those things are just like let loose, uh, you got to do a different kind of education and learning and have a different kind of awareness to have them harnessed effectively. And like any org debt, the important thing here is the fluidity and the flexibility and the shifting, not the thing itself. So to your point, like maybe someone does have a lot of power because of their experience. Well, there's a point at which that's we're too reliant on that. And we need mm-hmm. to shift back the other way because maybe novelty and freshness and beginner's mind is more helpful. So like totally. the whole point is not that there's any one place on the spectrum that's perfect, but more that like the literacy is the study of and the sense making of how is the current power dynamic serving us or not mm-hmm. serving us and how do we shift it? And I think that is definitely varsity, but also really interesting and I think we have we have the right instincts about it. We just have to figure out how to act on them. And I think the safety that's needed for that kind of conversation is like is uber <laughs> high. And that's why I think it's it's in a it's a varsity play because Rodney, to your point, like not only does it take learning and like cognitive knowledge of like I need to understand power and my privilege and all I'm bringing, but also then to get up around like a bunch of people with whom you work but are also maybe dependent on work and in a marketplace system being able to be like, this is how I think I'm showing up. And this is how I think um, I'm contributing to the pattern. This is how I see you contributing to the pattern. And when those conversations happen, like there's a, I can't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a magic in the mm-hmm. air because you see someone get like super real and they probably could happen more because it takes time and energy and focus and safety and, and all the things. What do you think the role of fear is in all this? I mean, I, I think it's super primal. I think it's central because showing up in that way is, is vulnerable, right? Cause I have to, I think I have, it seems vulnerable. I actually don't <laughs> think it, I don't think in reality it's vulnerable because when people do it, they come across as, as so thoughtful and mature. And I think it like 99% of the time is a reputational bonus. Mm-hmm. But I, I know as someone who's struggled with this, it feels very vulnerable <laughs> to point something out or to try to bring the conversation to that place. And so there's like the, my monkey mind straight away jumps into like, Oh, but it, you know, they might not be ready to have this conversation or you might be blowing out of proportion or you're going to come across this way and what that might mean for your ability to partner with this person on a project next. So like maybe someone else should just do this and it's not worth the energy and, and all of that stuff. And so I think like asking myself, like, is that fear, is it true, right? Is it just like actually, if I explore it, it's not a real fear. And then like, what's the what's the upside? Like, yeah, it might be a little uncomfortable, but but I think that's I think in a world without fear, we would be having those conversations a lot more, not just at the ready, but probably everywhere. Fear certainly plays a role. To me, what's interesting is to consider what you are actually afraid of. And anyone who's been listening to this show knows that 
I have a fundamental belief that all of human trauma comes basically down to a question of belonging and that all of our worst selves Mm. are just trying to figure out whether we are like in the tribe or out of the tribe, basically. And so I think part, a real part of the power dynamic and a real part of the fear is how badly do you need to belong to this system? And Mm. how badly do you want to belong to this system? (laughs) And I think if you look at a lot of patterns among our team members over the years, you can trace back a lot of things that have not been amazing moments that we've experienced together to those central issues of people who Mm -hmm. have a dependency, but not a desire people who have a desire, but not a dependency. Again, this comes back very much to like power dynamics, but I think there's a, I think there's a, a fear thread in that too. Yeah. I love that. And I think that's absolutely right. I, I think that the belonging stuff, the, you know, sort of security and well-being stuff, like it's all there. And my, what I have observed that I'm going to say, lightly i'm not even convicted about this but i just want to float it and see if you all will let it you know be in the air is i think just playing if we could all pretend that we didn't have fear that the business would struggle that we would lose position that we would lose money that something would go wrong that we wouldn't be liked like if we could just park that and then play the game by the current rules as they exist i think what is really interesting and counterintuitive is almost none of those fear outcomes would occur because a lot of them are manifested by the of sort of unhealthy reactions to the fear itself, right? So, like, suddenly all that stuff would be abundant and available because we're no longer focused and obsessed on the downside risks and the possibilities. Like all of our least helpful patterns. Yes. It's like, I feel terrible and my pants don't fit. I should have a cheeseburger. It's like, it's <laughs> right, all the right. same thing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely home. true. <laughs> um, I think, <laughs> you know, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we tell teams all the time, like, if you wait for the trust, like, you'll never get there. You have to act as if the trust is there and that builds the trust. And I think this is a place where people who have power in the system and in a self-managing system, it's probably informal power that you might have not even acknowledged to yourself. I, I do think there's, and we might differ here, so I'm curious to hear mm-hmm. your thoughts. I do think there's a responsibility to help create more safety for others because I think like in a purely rational world, like absolutely, we should just act as if there's trust. That's the f- fastest way to get there. If you look in the policies, like there's no reason to actually have there. But considering that as humans, we bring in all our stuff and we look for signal and all those things. When what I've noticed is when someone in the system with power, whether it's because of their experience or seniority or whatever, demonstrates that vulnerability themselves or invites people to kind of share what's going on in their shadow side or does, you know, a thoughtful check-in round or all any any which way in which they help create that safety, it it snowballs. And I think sometimes what I've noticed is in self-managing systems, sometimes there, or at least in the self-managing community, sometimes we talk so much about like shared responsibility and there isn't enough conversation about like what can people with power do to invite others in or to make it safer. And I think there's a real tension there because on one hand, like if you do too much, it's paternalistic mm-hmm. and we're back to like disempowering <laughs> people. <laughs> but but I think if we do nothing, it, it also doesn't acknowledge like the reality of, of where we are and where we're starting. So I, I don't know what to do with that, but it's a noticing. Practice. It's hard. <laughs> I think it is. It's it's a balancing act, right? And you you know when you've gone too far, when you aren't getting the reaction 
that you want to see, right? Like if you give a little mm. and you show some vulnerability and you make some space and you try to make some safety and people step into it, then great. And if you do it and the reaction is not what you expect, you might have gone too far. And I think it's just it's just tuning that instrument over time, which I think is, you know, it's the work of many years, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, you know, what came up for me, Hedy, as you were saying that is that to me, yes, yes to doing that (laughs) and sensing what those needs are in a system that is as sort of decentralized and in many ways, like loosely connected as ours is more difficult than it has been for me in other places. So to me, there is a bit of a tension because I will never tip into the side of like paternalism or protectionism because gross. To me, there is a bit of a tension in like um, holding an assumption, however lightly, that a power holder actually knows what the system needs in terms of safety because I think it, I think people's needs vary and we don't have that much like connection. Like I feel like we have a lot of, we have a lot of coherence at the moment, but in terms of actual like time together and, and sort of fabric weaving, it's pretty light. And so I like, I, my response is totally. And like to acknowledge and validate this, the sort of ask. And then my, my execution oriented mind is like, God, what would that look like without asking others to express a need? What would that look like? And like, I just, I don't know the answer to that. And the most frustrating thing of all is when you start to sense into this and you realize that actually different oppositional things. hundred percent happens all the time. One person needs me to step forward and be really clear. And the other person needs me to step back and make some space. Now what do I do? So yeah, it's really, it's, you know, the, the nuance and the subtlety is extreme. So we've been talking a lot about the ready, which is awesome because we're we're all a part of it. <laughs> and um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on kind of the broader culture, Aaron, especially as someone who's recently published the book in the future of workspace. Something that I noticed is, you know, there's a lot of kind of Nirvana-like language around new ways of working and future practices, but we've been talking a little bit about the shadow side. I'm curious, what is it that you both are noticing as you look at the broader community around this conversation of future work and shadow side? Do you feel it's given enough attention, too much attention, uh, no attention at all? And kind of where would you like the conversation to go? I think there's a paradox going on where the the reality is that like, yeah, there's a lot of very breathless, very excited, fist pumpy, rah, rah, rah stuff about self-management out there. I'm a, definitely a part of that, like guilty as charged. But I think the reason for that is that when you're trying to fight such an entrenched status quo, that has been around for more than a century, in some cases, more than a millennia, that like is baked in and that a lot of people can't really see around going out with like, a this is going to be harder in different ways, but better is not exactly the sales pitch that opens doors. And so I think that that, that a lot of people are saving the nuances and the subtleties and the challenges that come with deeper practice for people to encounter when they encounter it. And in some ways, I feel like this is a lot like any activity, whether you talk to like a master chef or a you know concert violinist or a rock climber who's a professional, like the things you hear about in the first class are not 
shaving the pads of your fingers off because they're falling apart after climbing a 514D or, you know, having to mm. having to modify your back posture so that you don't have a problem in old age because of the way you're playing the violin. Like that stuff comes with mastery. And so some part of me is like, yeah, it's a little optimistic. It's a little over the top. And the the belief that I hold, and this is a belief that I just hold as my own and not necessarily a fact or the way things are, is given the nature of human beings and what we desire and what motivates us and what creates meaning in our lives, the trades that we're being asked to make in new ways of working and self-management are good trades. They are not easy. They are not simple. They are not without the, their costs. But like my experience has been that they create a much more fruitful kind of eudaimonic environment, even though it asks those new and different things. So I'm I'm sort of okay with both the explicit trade-offs and I'm a little bit okay with the like sugarcoating because I want more people at the party. Hmm. How about you, Rodney? What have you noticed? I have noticed that when I speak somewhere, attend a conference or, you know, read the things that there is a tendency to separate the human side from the system side. And to me, that is what is unhelpful right now in the conversation about the future of work. So, you know, we meet a lot of people who are more progressive, more self-aware, more power literate, more on the coaching, human dynamic, people positive side end of the spectrum of the work we do. And a fair number of those people, I would say the majority are like, I don't want to do systems work. (laughs) And then on the other end, we meet the very like architect heady, you know, often from product oriented worlds who are looking at like, you know, how to hack governance and how to do participatory change and how to create more dynamic structure, et cetera, et cetera. And are kind of like, yeah, yeah. If you like change the aquarium, the fish change, and that's the whole deal. And to me, those things obviously work in a feedback loop with each other. (laughs) And unfortunately, we all have to get pretty good at both of them. And anything Mm. else is insufficient. Both of those schools of thinking and, and, you know, interdisciplinary giant schools of thought are necessary and insufficient to actually changing large complex systems. So to me, I'm, I'm less concerned about the hyperbole and I'm more concerned about like the systems and the people being sort of on different sides of the equation and thinking that their thing is the thing that's going to make the change when actually it's both of the things together that make the change. Say that's so well said, and what a great illustration of the splitting dynamic we were talking about earlier that right. happens in large systems, right? Like one side is it's all about the people, and the other side is it's all about the systems and the work of of holding both and integrating both. I think just hearing you articulate it that way, that's kind of getting at what I was sensing myself of like something seems missing. And, and I think that might be it. Well, now that we've said it's both, uh, Brave New Work Bingo <laughs> is complete. And that means the episode <laughs> is also complete. So I'm going to draw things to a close. Uh, Yehudi, thanks so much for coming by, joining us, repping the ready. We really appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Loved it. If y'all loved meeting Yehudi and want to meet more Ready members, I'm holding them hostage. And in exchange <laughs> for a review, I will bring them to record on this show. Please pass it along and you'll get to hear from all of the rest of our friends. As always, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we get to help organizations all around the world change the way they work and grapple with this super fun stuff. 
You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks so much for listening. Now go change something. Go change something.